0: Hi there, and welcome to the first annual holiday wonk special of Hot and Bothered, which is a podcast about climate politics for the 99% hosted by Dissent Magazine. I'm Daniel Aldana-Cohen. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm wearing a truly classic ugly holiday sweater and sipping vegan eggnog right now. Mmm, and I hope you are too. So my co-host Kate Aronoff hates vegan eggnog, uh, so we've given her the week off, but you can still find her online covering the unfolding Trump-pocalypse at In These Times, at The Guardian, and elsewhere. Now, because this show is a holiday wonk special, it's about data and what smart data analysis can tell us about carbon consumption and the politics of climate change. So we'll be talking at length with Kevin Amel. He is a brilliant environmental economist based in Colorado and a data scientist he was formerly a research scholar at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Vienna, Austria. And he's currently consulting for organizations like the Citizens Climate Lobby and the World Resources Institute. Now, Kevin has produced an incredible database of per capita carbon footprints by zip code in the United States. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that later, and we're going to get pretty, pretty deep into some pretty central questions. How do you actually figure out who is responsible for how many emissions, for which emissions? You know, what are the things that we do that cause emissions? What does, what does our understanding of this, this way that carbon moves through the economy, what does this understanding mean for doing climate politics in a way that also reduces inequalities? So more on that to come. First, I uh, want to just do a quick update on a kind of a, another area of data and climate change, very timely with the new uh, president-elect, one Donald J. Trump, So one of the scary, toxic smoke tendrils from this five-alarm dumpster fire situation is the looming war on climate science. Now, we know from all kinds of precedents, like Stephen Harper's war on environmental science in Canada, that this new administration could be really bad news for climate data. This new administration could cut funding for the gathering of new data, which seems at this point quite likely. It could also erase or even just conceal or block access to data that already exists, Now, given how important continuous time series data on the Earth system is to understanding the greatest threat that humanity has ever faced, uh, screwing with this research is a little bit like burning off your toupee to spite your own scalp, Um, or something like that. Uh, I have to admit that normally Kate writes the jokes, so I'm kind of flying solo here uh, on that front. Um, In any case, what the precautionary principle tells us is you don't wait until after the disaster to start preparing for it. So, I teach, uh, like I said, at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm very proud to report that a bunch of my colleagues here in the Penn Program on Environmental Humanities, uh, these colleagues are organizing to defend climate data. They're working with a wide range of other groups, uh, you know, elsewhere, including other universities, groups like the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, Climate Mirror, the End of Term Harvest. And there is just a whole bunch of events linked to this happening in more and more cities. Um, it's a bit hard to keep up to date with this really fast-moving and exciting effort. The best way to kind of keep track of this is by looking up the hashtag DataRefuge, so hashtag DataRefuge, and we'll have links to a bunch of these initiatives up at the Descent website on the Hot and Bothered page. Now, the data story, again, is not just about climate science. Uh, it's also about the social science of the things that people do which cause greenhouse gas emissions. And indeed, compared to how much we know about how the Earth's climate uh, changes, what causes it to change, we actually know shockingly little about the social drivers of this in a kind of nuanced way. How is it that everyday life, that social class, that race, that various aspects of cities and suburbs, their built environments, how does all this shape the greenhouse gas emissions which then cause climate change? Now, this is again something we don't know much about, but this is really the area where Kevin Amell Uh, The data scientist and environmental economist that I'll be talking to is really working very hard to shed some really badly needed light. Now, I discovered Kevin's work through my own research on cities and carbon and social class and housing, and the two of us actually ended up collaborating. He provided me and a couple of cartographers with some customized carbon footprint data for every zip code of New York City. Now, the resulting map that illustrates this data is published alongside an essay that I wrote in Nonstop Metropolis, a New York City atlas. And this atlas just came out this fall. And in fact, if you're in New York, you've probably seen ads for it on the subway, which is kind of amazing. Now, wherever you are, you can see a copy of the map online. You can go to descentmagazine.org at the hot and bothered page. And if you'd like to read some of the essay that I wrote alongside with the map, the essay called Petrogotham People's Gotham, you can go to theleapblog.org. That's the blog of The Leap, and it is an online publication about climate justice that is a friend of this podcast. So, uh, you know, moving on, uh, although Kevin and I don't talk about Trump directly, I know that you'll be eager to connect the dots as you listen. Um, you know, going into it, I think the bad news is that, obviously, we're not going to be able to apply the insights from Kevin's work around equity and carbon pricing uh, in a national legal framework while Trump is in power. But on the flip side, we do now have the unwanted luxury of time to really think through this research uh, and other research like it so that when we do really get a a progressive government uh, in office, hopefully in just a few years, we are ready with the smart policies and just as important, the kind of compelling stories about those policies, uh, which it's going to take to make really big changes to battle climate change and to make those really big changes really fast. Kevin, it's great to have you on. How did you get started doing uh, this research connecting consumption to greenhouse gas emissions?
1: I came at it a bit obliquely. Uh, I was working at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C., which uh, is primarily interested in how policies in rich countries affect um, poverty internationally. And uh, I was working on climate issues there. And I realized... um, well, I should put it this way. Uh I, I think every researcher every once in a while should uh should play should play the um, um you know if I were a king game, how I think of it. If you if you were a king for a day and you could implement one policy, what would it be and why? And if you play that game, knowing what you know about the state of the world, I think answering that can help you help direct you in terms of what research is actually needed. Or useful, and when I asked myself that question in the context of climate change, um, the answer I came up with was: Well, if you had carbon pricing, national comprehensive carbon pricing in the United States—that's that's a game changer. That isn't anything new, but that's that's an obvious policy that would have tremendous impact. And the question becomes: What are the hangups? What are what are the barriers, politically or otherwise, to doing that? And there's been a lot of work in modeling the macroeconomic consequences of potential carbon pricing in the United States, Uh, but there hasn't been as much work on how those policies would, would affect households. What are the microeconomic consequences? If you tax carbon you raise the price of goods, not uniformly, some goods go up more than others, but you in, you impose a cost on households. and some households, the costs are are really significant because they live a certain lifestyle or live in a certain density or live in a place with coal generating their electricity and so forth. And some households might have very different outcomes. So I originally started developing trying to develop a high resolution household level consumption database as a means of eventually modeling The impact of carbon pricing on households. Uh, So the first step was just generating the consumption emissions and then more recently earlier this year uh, working with uh, Citizens Climate Lobby published a study that went, the the second half went the whole way and simulated a a carbon tax policy on households and see what um, what the impact is across different types of households by race, by income, by family type, by geography and so forth. And uh, so, so that's my interest. How how can we use this information to tailor policies or construct policies that generate that one don't harm people unnecessarily, particularly people at the lower end of the income distribution, and two, can we design policy in ways that provide benefits, provide net benefits to households in key places of the country or to key political constituencies?
0: Could you just explain in simple terms what the difference is between a consumption-based Carbon accounting and the more traditional kinds people see, which we often call production or territorial based accounting?
1: Sure. Territorial emissions refer to emissions that take place within a particular border, usually a political border. Um, So if you think about international climate negotiations at the UN, uh, the Paris climate deal, those are negotiations that are dealing with territorial emissions. How much is China or the US or the European Union going to reduce emissions within their borders. But of course, uh, China, for example, exports a lot of goods. Uh, So pollution is produced in China in Chinese factories to make uh, a Samsung television or whatever the Chinese version is. And then it's sent abroad and it's actually consumed, purchased and consumed by someone elsewhere. Uh, So that's where consumption-based emission accounting comes in, which is uh, looking not at where emissions are physically generated, but where the consumption occurs. That is the impetus for the pollution and emissions in the first place.
0: You know, the consumption accounting, of course, can be traced to a country, to a region, to a city, even down to individuals in a neighborhood. But You know, leaving aside the question of international trade trade flows, which is an obvious distinction you would have. What are some other reasons if we're thinking more at, let's say, the urban or the regional scale or the individual scale, why consumption-based emissions accounting might be interesting or important or you know should get more attention than it has so far?
1: Well one reason the reason that I set out to develop fairly detailed consumption-based emissions for the US is that for certain types of environmental policy being able to measure and understand consumption emissions is key to understanding the impact of the policy. So take, for example, something like carbon pricing. So that could be a cap-and-trade program or carbon taxes. If we want to understand how taxing carbon impacts the finances of individual households or particular communities, we need to understand, in effect, the consumption-based emissions of those households or communities. In addition, and this is also of interest to me and maybe to listeners, if you are interested at all in the ethics surrounding uh, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, then territorial emissions are really of limited interest because the ethical uh, burden associated with emissions and climate change is ultimately coming down to consumption. And so consumption-based emissions uh, are, are a way of – a much more accurate way of assigning uh, whatever – enter enter your word of choice here. Blame, responsibility, eth- ethical culpability for uh, the problems associated with emissions.
0: Uh, fantastic. And so um, when we're talking about consumption-based emissions, I think it's, it's important just to make sure – that we don't get trapped into thinking this is just a a story about consumerism per se. Um, My understanding is that with consumption-based emissions, you are still ultimately capturing all of the emissions worldwide. You are then just assigning them to the final consumer, whether it's a person or or an organization, right? So it's not just a way of talking, oh, let's just talk about consumption, right? But it's a different way of conceptualizing the kind of global carbon cycle and the global economy uh, at the same time. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, ma- the best way to think about this is actually in terms of dollar expenditure. So, and this is actually when we, when we calculate consumption-based emissions, this is more or less the technique we use. If I know how much money you spend on a particular type of consumption, let's say money that you spend on clothing, uh, there are techniques and data that we can use to estimate the carbon intensity of a dollar spent on clothing. And we can do this for all sorts of different types of expenditures. Uh, for the data I've developed, uh, ultimately we use about 55 different types of consumption. So it's, I like to think of it in terms of um, what we're really doing here is measuring expenditure. And then we have carbon intensity for different types of dollars. So a, a dollar spent on your car insurance is a pretty low carbon dollar. The only carb- carbon associated with that expenditure is some carbon used to operate some, some uh, office building somewhere where they take care of build- billing and logistics and maybe some emissions associated with a claims agent going out to look at things. It's a pretty low consumption dollar, but there are other dollars we spend, say a dollar on gasoline uh, or a dollar on uh, natural gas or a dollar on air travel that are very high carbon dollars. So it ultimately comes back to consumption, but it's not just saying consumption is bad. We are adding in the the additional important feature here that some types of consumption, some types of expenditure have a much larger environmental impact than others.
0: Great. I think that's really helpful, right? So if you were spending your money on um, going to see a stand-up comic who's sitting, standing up there on stage with like a microphone, that's totally different than if you were spending it on fast fashion or fast furniture. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at?
1: Yeah, um, and actually, if you one of the more interesting tables that you can look at in in um, the working papers behind the the data that we're talking about here are, is the table that shows the carbon intensity per dollar, carbon intensity of a dollar for different types of consumption. And when you look at that table, you really see in relatively detailed um, strokes uh, how carbon intensive different types of different types of expenditure are. And for the most part, they'll align with common sense. Um, but I also find that people, people often underestimate the carbon intensity of, say, consumption of, of things other than energy. So everybody understands that when they consume, when they go and buy some gasoline and put it in their car, that that's producing carbon and that that's a high carbon, uh, high carbon consumption. But, you know, clothing is a good example. Clothing is something that a lot of people spend quite freely on. Um, and actually, if you look at it in the in the context of all the types of consumption we engage in, clothing is a relatively, not super high, but relatively carbon intensive uh, form of consumption.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's really important to note, especially in the era of fast fashion. Um, I think that actually kind of, for me, that really brings us into New York. Uh, you know, I did my PhD at New York University, NYU, and my department was about two blocks from Broadway, which is just a... I think of it as sort of like a pipeline between people's wallets and, uh, you know, the farm fields where cotton is <laughs> grown, the factories where the stuff is woven. So like massive high turnover uh, carbon situation there. Um, So, you know, at, at a kind of basic level, I wonder if you could just say something, I guess developing what you've said already about when I, when I look at this map of New York, you know, which is based on the data that you've produced, let's say a certain zip code has, you know, an average of per capita, 17 tons of carbon uh, or carbon dioxide equivalent uh, per capita. So, you know, what, what is kind of behind that number? Roughly speaking, if someone is emitting around 17, let's say 20 um, tons of, of CO2e per year, what, what, what is actually behind that number in terms of activities, uh, in terms of the relationship of that individual to the kind of global economy?
1: So the, in, in the example you gave, the 17 tons of carbon dioxide pollution... Um, means that if we were to, as best we can, uh, add up all the different personal consumption activities that person engages in, buying food, buying gasoline, paying their utilities, um, buying, the, buying clothes, buying financial services, whatever it is, um, if we add all of those up and multiply each of them by an estimate of how carbon intensive each of those activities are, um, add it all together, then we get 17 tons. And I, say, I specifically said personal consumption because the number doesn't include, for example, other emissions that uh, are the result of indirect consumption that, that we engage in, but is generally done by the public sector. So, for example, uh, when there's a snowstorm in New York and the city sends out fleets of uh, machines to clear the streets of snow, that clearly has a, an effect on, on emissions, but we don't include that uh in the 17 tons. So emissions associated with public services are excluded, but all other consumption that is the result of of specific decisions on the part of households that's included in that 17. Great. That that's really I think that's really helpful. Um so
0: you know, when I'm thinking about comparing an urban emissions uh consumption based versus territorial based um so you're you know, it's great to point out that this household level data that we're talking about here is, you know, is not going to include governments uh, or firms. um. But, you know, th- this consumption-based thing does, I think, say a couple things that are really interesting compared to territorial. So one is with a post-industrial city like New York, right? If you're not counting the full footprint of consumption, you are leaving out the whole story of, let's say, China or what have you, right? There are no factories in New York making laptops. So New York looks pretty good if you're only looking at what's coming out in that area. Um, but I'm also curious, you know, what what you've seen what you found in terms of uh density, um we hear that density is just like the cure all to all problems, no matter what in cities with respect to uh, carbon emissions with respect to energy efficiency um you know what are some of the complications of that story that you've found looking at the consumption data uh
1: yeah but before I talk about density i one comment about what you just said about the difference between territorial and consumption emissions at the level of localities or cities. That's absolutely right. It often bugs me because, for example, the city I live in, in Colorado, uh, the, the mayor and the city council have these, have these big public proclamations about how they're going to reduce Fort Collins, the city I live in. They're going to reduce emissions by X percent by some year in the future. And there are hundreds of cities across the country that do this. And it's it published in the paper, and people read, well, it's fantastic. Our city is going to reduce its emissions and so forth. And of course, what they really mean is that they're reducing emissions associated with public services, and which is, in most cases, going to be maybe 10 maybe 15% of the entire greenhouse gas uh, uh, emission total that we would assign to the people living in the city. So I think uh, as, uh, those are great efforts by public sectors and they 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 should be doing them but I, I wonder sometimes if, if when people read those headlines they are they are misled into thinking that we are in fact doing more than than we are to reduce emissions uh, on the question of density uh, certainly living in more dense urban landscapes has a positive benefit in terms of emissions uh, this is well established uh, the most efficient way to live in an abode (laughs) in simple terms is to have a small abode and stack a lot of them together, um, an apartment building. Uh, however the confounding factor here is income and in some of the densest populated parts of the country, Manhattan being a, a prime example here, we find that density is also accompanied by higher incomes. This isn't always true, but in certain high density places it is, it is the case. And so then you have a race, you have a race in terms of consumption-based emissions between the positive benefits of density and the negative effects of income. Because as income goes up, uh, the relationship between income and consumption is extremely strong. And so as incomes go up, people consume more, and that consumption has emissions associated with it, and the household footprints go up. So in, in one of the working papers I published, I tried to show what this relationship looks like by plotting a graph that showed how the typical per-person consumption-based greenhouse gas footprint changed as we moved that person from, for the average person, from a very rural, low-density environment and then increasingly increased density through the suburbs and into inner-city, very dense urban neighborhoods. And we find that it has an inverted U shape. So if you go to very, very sparsely populated parts of the country very rural of course they're inefficient homes they're primarily single-family homes often larger people are driving long distances just to go to the Walmart Uh, and so in some ways those lifestyles are extremely carbon inefficient but the people in those areas also tend to be poorer, Mm -hmm. so they're consuming less and this actually leads to compared to say the American suburbs this leads to a fairly low greenhouse gas footprint the suburbs are the worst they're the apex of the inverted U and this is where we have the worst of both worlds. We have comparatively high income and consumption in the suburbs and relatively inefficient housing and transport. And then as you increase into more urban, more traditional urban landscapes with more, more density, uh, you see footprints coming down, but they don't come down, you know, it's not like you fall off a cliff. It's not as though you reach some density threshold and suddenly everything is good. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a gradual decline in footprint with density with large variations and Manhattan would be an example of this if you if you were to go to Queens you would find high density and relatively low footprints and in Manhattan you'd find a high density and relatively high footprints and the difference of course is income and consumption
0: yeah i think i think that last bit there is so fascinating the you know people in Queens or in Brooklyn um, many parts of the Bronx really do live pretty well and they live in neighborhoods that have been you know, look a lot like what urbanists like Jane Jacobs have described as a kind of paradise of like relatively high density, but it's not crushing, uh, you know, eyes on the street, a really bustling street life, really rich human encounters. Um, but, you know, to me, your vision differs quite a bit from this early celebration of density. I think about the New Yorker writer David Owen, who said, you know, the future of, of sustainability in this country looks more like Midtown Manhattan than rural Vermont. Those are his like two points of comparison. And yet, when I look at the map that we made with your data, I don't see Midtown Manhattan. Emissions there are practically what you see in some of the richest suburbs. Um, I look more at Queens, Brooklyn, some of those areas with subway access, with relatively dense housing. That seems to be kind of the sweet spot. Now, is that, I mean, am I just seeing things? Would you interpret the data in a similar way?
1: Yeah, I think in broad strokes, I think the pattern I just described, which is consistent with what you just uh, elucidated, I think that pattern seems reasonable to me and I think the data however we were to improve the data or slice and dice the data I think that pattern would would come through um, you know th- this question of this question of to what extent does density solve the emissions problem um, one uh, the only reason I hesitate is that there are some aspects of the consumption based emission accounting that we don't are, are not able to measure terribly well or or for which we are not able to pick up local uh, variance very well. So so for example, uh, let's take public transportation. Uh, In the data that you have and in the data that I've generated, uh, we're able to observe how much people in different parts of the country pay for public transportation services. But we don't have estimates of how carbon intensive the individual public transportation systems are in different parts of the country. But we know they vary. Uh, Because the electricity supply for running, say, uh, an urban subway system or urban light rail system varies across the country. But that variation isn't picked up in the data yet. Although in the future, I think that's something that we could pick up. So it may be that the story is a little more complicated. But I think in broad strokes, uh, that pattern is likely to hold, even if we were to refine the data considerably.
0: Great. But yeah, I, I'm what I'm hearing there is sort of saying it really does actually make a difference if you're running on the worst diesel buses versus the most advanced biodiesel, eventually hybrid buses or something like that. Right. So that the intuition is there in terms of consumption, um, you know, how much how much consumption, broadly speaking, starts to undermine density. But if you want to really get down to the decimal level of a particular place, you really do need to know exactly what's going into the various technologies that are, you know, people are using to move around, for instance. Right,
1: right.
0: Um, so c- could you say something um in terms of like, what is driving up, let's say, the uh, emissions footprint of, you know, uh, someone who's earning quite a bit of money, maybe living in a one or two person household in Manhattan. Uh, They think their apartment building is lead. But, you know, I think intuitively when I talk to people, they say, okay, right. So spending, buying more clothes, sure. um You know, flying, uh, is that, do you see that, Playing a big role, the kind of increase in in air travel with with income. You know, I think there's a question out there I have never seen it answered: if you know, living in in dense, overbearing downtown environments like London or or Manhattan, cause people to fly more. And then I think there's something interesting you found about food, which I'd love to hear a bit about in terms of uh, carbon footprint and food and income.
1: Sure. Uh, if you if you simply look at dollars, let's ignore carbon for a, for a moment, and let's just look at expenditures. Um, obviously as people's incomes go up, expenditure goes up. And the question is what, what, what is it that people spend more on as they become wealthier and, uh, people tend to spend more as they get wealthier on less carbon intensive things. And this makes sense because it's really hard to live without heat in the winter or in oppressive climates. It's very hard to live without air conditioning in the summer. But it is possible to live, believe it or not, uh, for <laughs> listeners of the podcast. It is possible to live without ever a very nice life, without ever setting sitting on an airplane, yeah, um, <laughs> or having the the latest and greatest electronics and clothes. Um, but as people get richer, they tend to consume more and more. They're they're consuming their their dollars are less carbon intensive as they, they add. add more and more dollars, but they're adding dollars really quickly, <laughs> right, right, uh, because incomes really blow up as you move up the income distribution. So what, what is driving up these, these um, let's say, non-utility emissions? Um, so people engage in a lot more of what we might call recreational travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, the, if you're poor, um, my, my wife is a speech therapist. She works almost exclusively with low-income households uh, here in northern Colorado. Mm-hmm. And she often has clients who can't come to therapy sessions because uh, they don't have money to put gas in the car. Now that's something that as you move up the income distribution, people don't think about if I want to do something, uh, and I, and it's far away or maybe not even that far away, but I want to use my car. I just get in the car and do it. And we actually see this in the data. So people spend a lot more money on, on, uh, transport that's not just going to and from their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you think about travel road trips, you know, the, the classic, uh, uh Conventional middle-class summer road trip—that's not something that most Americans do. Uh, most Americans spend almost no money on travel, mm-hmm. because uh, it, they're barely ends are barely meeting as it is. They're as t- can't get time off. But as you move the income distribution, this happens a lot, and not just road trips, but getting on airplanes and so on and so forth. the The place where I think uh, people at the upper end of the income distribution probably underestimate their footprint is in is in what you might call household furnishings. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these are things that um, you know think about furniture, uh, rugs, carpets, all the things that go into a home, these are actually fairly carbon intensive things. These are big manufacturers. Right. And uh, people at the upper end of the income distribution are replacing or adding to their stock of household furnishings quite frequently. And and then so and then what about food? So there's there's one other um
0: there's one other database that tries to localize consumption based emissions, uh, out of the Berkeley out of Berkeley I think it's called the Cool Climate Lab. And I have found their numbers a bit puzzling because they seem to kind of miss the income effect in in dense cities. And one of the things the differences between their model and yours is they just assume that the food footprint of everybody is the same because they say, well, roughly speaking, every American eats the same amount of beef or something like that. And now I find that pretty unconvincing, and I know we've talked a bit about this before, but I wonder if you would say something about uh, about the difference in in modeling there and of course, these are all modeling choices. I mean, there's no absolute right and wrong, let's say, but I think we can be more or less persuasive in how we're capturing our video life in these models
1: sure and 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 uh, the the numbers that we're talking about here and the numbers out of the Berkeley cool climate labs are are broadly similar, so it's not as though there's big massive differences here but um yeah, on food uh so the 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 more recent updated version of this consumption accounting that i've done uh looks at how people actually spend their money on food and then um uses that to try to estimate how many calories of different types of food they're consuming and then assign carbon on that basis and mm-hmm. and so it does a bit more detailed um so what i'm going now what i'm going to say here is is has not been published and so should be considered you know fairly anecdotal in a data sense. It's just what I've seen informally working with, with uh, household survey data about actual calorie consumption. So it's a households. hypothesis at this point. Yes, this is a hypothesis. Although a reasoned one based on, on some yeah, research. Yeah, based, based, on, based, on, based on a couple graphs I've Great. seen. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is true. So when, when, when most people think of the environmental footprint or certainly the greenhouse gas footprint of their diet, they rightly think of meat consumption, and particularly beef and as the folks at Berkeley have pointed out, there isn't really a lot of evidence that people consume more meat uh, as they get richer in the U S globally as in a global context. we This is a clear uh, trend here. As people yeah. get richer, they consume more meat, but in the U S um, actually in terms of, in terms of calories, we see that people at the lower end of the distribution actually consume roughly the same amount of meat calories at the upper end. But um, A couple things might be happening here, and I haven't seen any published research on this, so I think this is a bit of an open question, but a couple things are happening that I I see anecdotally in the data that make me think that maybe there is still an upward gradient with income with respect to food emissions. And one is uh, that there is evidence, if you believe the data, that richer households actually simply consume more calories Um, again, this isn't something that we might guess off the bat, but if you're in a really, uh, income and therefore food constrained environment, you might just eat less. And this seems to be the case. It's not a huge difference, like maybe 10%, but that's still noticeable. The other thing is that as people move up the income distribution, uh, the composition of calories changes at the low end of the distribution, a a shocking, To me shocking percentage of calories comes from things like soft drinks Uh, and of course this has all sorts of health problems but from an environmental standpoint sugar which is the primary ingredient in soft drinks is a really low carbon calorie so as you move up the income distribution and you say and you substitute out soft drinks for milk which is what we see we see higher dairy, more, more consumption of dairy calories in the upper part of income distribution. Well, dairy calories are really high carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, at the low, low end of the distribution, a lot of calories are coming from refined carbohydrates. Um, but those are really low carbon calories. As you move up, people start shifting for very good reasons. I'm not arguing that people shouldn't do this, mm-hmm. but for very good health reasons, um, and maybe culinary reasons, people shift into more vegetable and fruit calories, but those are high carbon calories. So it could be that um, independent of the meat question, which might be a wash in terms of income, that there might be other things going on that still lead to higher footprints food footprints among the rich. but this is I should say this is generally speculative, and I haven't actually published anything on this yet. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this, this, all of this is really interesting,
0: and you know, I mean, it's there are certainly good reasons to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, but there is, I think, increasing concern that if everybody were to try to go paleo, I mean, that's just a recipe for eco apartheid or massive global warming. Um, the,
1: you know, I. But and by by the way, there was there was, just a few months ago, relatively recently, there was a, a good paper published. I believe by a researcher at, at Carnegie Mellon, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about that, um, who tried to estimate if all Americans were to eat the recommended diet, what would happen to footprints? Mm-hmm. And they find the greenhouse gas footprint would go up, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. for, perhaps for the reasons I just described. But they also found that if Americans consumed the recommended amount of calories overall, that this would more or less wash out that effect. Right which i think is okay so so we can we can eat a healthy diet we should probably just eat fewer calories overall and eat more healthy calories and and in terms of emissions we're, we're, we probably end up where we started mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think the the consumption stuff I, I think is often especially for progressives
0: so delicate because uh it, it, it can seem to almost justify or to sort of celebrate poverty at some per, in some perverse way and um it then becomes you know sort of like unappealing to try to lower your footprint or it almost seems like ammunition again for a kind of eco apartheid type scenario right where the the better off get to maintain their consumption levels but the the price of reduced emissions is sort of forced on everybody else um so and, and certainly that is not um what either of us is interested in uh, at all but i think it's it's important to acknowledge some of the queasiness that people feel about the consumption stuff because I worry that sometimes that gets in the way of doing any analysis, uh, at all. And then we can't even, as you were saying at the opening of this discussion, you know, you really need for ethical reasons to understand how carbon is distributed through the economy. Uh, and that does mean then going through the details and some, and, and to maintaining some kind of moral clarity about, you know, we're not just counting this as kind of bean counters or to try to bring people down. Um, but this is the really rigorous sort of, let's say, social scientific work that you have to do in order to then get at these, Uh, ethical debates at the level of you know how is the cost of decarbonizing how can we ultimately distribute it in the most fair way possible i mean would you agree with that and i guess i'm just sort of editorializing on the cuff there but um
1: and i would say that if we think big picture what ultimately do we think is is the leverage point for this kind of analysis or or research in this general vein and my answer to that is um are the objective the objective should be for for everyone involved to enable people to lead and live high-quality lives with high levels of life satisfaction. And I think that the the logical follow-on argument from very techie data type analysis like this is to ask, well, are there types of consumption that we currently regularly engage in that that we think are not central to the provisioning of of high quality um, lives. And that's that's a very old idea. (laughs) There's nothing new about that. But um, perhaps having a bit more, uh, you know, a a bit more rigor, uh, a bit more quantification behind it for some people, leads them to take it more seriously or makes the makes the kind of life choices that that they might want to make um more obvious Um, and i see that as that's not something that you easily do through public policy although we can imagine public policy levers that might impact people's consumption choices a carbon tax is an obvious one but um that that bigger question which is part ethics and part what is the good life um to me that is that is the the ultimate question here yeah absolutely um and so from my perspective
0: you know i guess as a as an urbanist political sociologist right is like how can you think about the designing or defending urban environments in which that good life is really uh, at the center you know the radical urbanist mike davis talking about carbon he says you know the the classical virtues of urbanism These kind of jane jacobs like relatively dense neighborhoods where people can walk to their, to their job or to their services is, you know, it's about prioritizing public affluence over private wealth and that mm-hmm. is both, you know, a better way to live and uh, it's lower carbon. And, you know, again, it's so striking to me about your, your data and plotting it on this map of New York is how weird it is that we ended up with this concept for a while that Manhattan represented that when it's really not, <laughs> I mean, there are parts of Manhattan, sure. The, you know, down in Chinatown and, and that kind of thing. And up, up in harlem um and with the weird the perverse thing is that those great neighborhoods are actually mostly out in the outer boroughs and those are the ones now that everybody's coming for to gentrify um because mm-hmm. that's where the subway is and that's where the the amenities are
1: um it, it might it might be fair to interject with the with the social science adage that the job of a social scientist is to generalize but we should never do it and <laughs> i and i think in this case it, it's worth pointing out that one of the One of the the key analytical steps in developing the data that we're discussing here, one of the things I wanted to do with the the, the technical side of it was not just generate um, average results for particular geographic entities, but to do the analysis in a way that we can actually see the distribution, see the variability in household carbon footprints within a given jurisdiction. So in Manhattan uh in, in the atlas and the map that, that we're talking about, what we're what we are showing there is an average number. That average number is actually calculated from the estimated distribution of household footprints within Manhattan. And that distribution could be quite wide. So it uh and this is true of any of any locality, of any neighborhood. Um you know geography is not destiny in this case. You you can live in a place that on average has high carbon footprints and choose to live your lifestyle in a way that is, in fact, uh, um, aligned with a, a relatively low-carbon lifestyle, and and we, and this data allows us to see the actual bell curve, the actual distribution within a given place.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's such a great point, and it, it gets us to this this sort of tension, but that we can, I think, get both sides of. On the one hand, you really need very strong public policy to bend the curve at the broad social level, but. But that doesn't mean that as an individual you are like a prisoner of social destiny or something mm-hmm. uh there are steps that you can you know you yourself can take and then of course there's the fact that right new york city you often have huge buildings in which one unit is rent controlled and the the one next to it isn't and of course the footprints are you know given what that implies likely to be you know very different um so i let's let's just um you know you're a data scientist and i'd love to close this out by just talking a little bit about again the data and you know, some of the steps you've taken to to further develop and improve the data since the, you know, this since this book was kind of set up, this map was, was generated about a year ago. And, you know, down the road, it, it's to me, and I'm not a data scientist, but to me, striking how little effort there has been from public bodies to produce data of any sort, of any quality that gives us a sense of, again... Where consumption and carbon, how they're connected, uh, with respect to place, to income, et cetera, uh, in urban regions. So, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're working away on this, this really, really valuable service to the public. What, you know, what do we need to do to, to make this data even better, even stronger? Um, and, you know, around specific cities more broadly across the U.S., like, you know, how, how can we kind of make this work even, even richer? Um, and, and not, not that this stuff is like wrong,
1: but how can we make it,
0: make it richer, more fine grained? Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I, I'm I'm of two minds. I mean, one answer is to say that um, g- going going after the fifth decimal place, you know, probably isn't terribly useful <laughs> in 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 terms of uh, certainly in terms of public policy. We just most public policy really doesn't depend upon that detailed of information. Uh, for well, that sounds st- that sounds
0: excessively wise for a data scientist. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This this is a yeah a data scientist who has who has seen how data has been used in a number of real world policy construction processes and and has seen it uh, laid 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 to the side right. <laughs> let's say occasionally it yeah, right. okay. um, so, so there are fundamental limitations to this uh, just from a from a technical standpoint you know we we just can't uh, we can't estimate the carbon intensity of dollars with with high uh, confidence. Um, and this, this leads to some problems. I mean for example, when I've presented this data to, to lay audiences, uh, and let's say let's say um, upper middle income progressive lay audiences, uh, one of the first things they say is, well, you're not taking into account the fact that I, I buy all my food from the local farmers market. Uh, to which my response is, you're right, I'm not. Uh, but if I did, it wouldn't change the conclusion at all. Yeah. Uh, and so there is there is a disconnect between public perception about behaviors that generate big environmental benefits. Buying local food is, is I think, probably one of the worst defenders here. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and so there is benefit in my mind. Um, well, this is debatable. I would argue that there is benefit in presenting people with the reality of the situation. Others might argue, uh, well, yeah, okay, buying your food at a local farmer's market may not have that much of a big practical impact in terms of a person's footprint, but uh, it it at least gets the person doing other positive social things. Sure. But we should know the truth of what we're doing, right? I mean... Yeah, I I generally think that that's a good operating principle. (laughs) I mean, the alternatives are Um, not as exciting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what can public agencies do? I mean, so one th- one thing that would be fairly easy. There are some data privacy issues here, but we 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 deal with data privacy in all sorts of other contexts in yeah. loosey goosey ways. So, um, obviously, utilities utilities have uh, utility companies have excellent information about actual physical quantities of fuel, electricity, natural gas, heating oil, um, water as well, consumed by individual residences. And sometimes this is traceable to individual apartments. And it seems to me that it it would be possible, or should be possible, for researchers to partner with either utility companies, and this has happened occasionally in, in the literature, or with public entities who oftentimes are, are have access to similar information in, in some way, um, and say, how, how can we um, anonymize data? How can we um, get access to it in a way that allows us to get more geographic detail about what individual neighborhoods are doing mm-hmm. um, without compromising privacy and so forth? And because um, right now, when we try to estimate uh, say the emissions associated with electricity consumption among households. There are a couple different ways the Berkeley group does it does it differently than I do it but we're more or less using relatively low low and low sample size surveys to do this. And The sample and the surveys don't have great geographic resolution themselves. So an obvious place for improvement would be to to, to try to get access to at least random samples of um, actual utility data. And and a good place to start here is is places in the country where there are public utilities Mm -hmm. because presumably there is, uh, well, I say presumably, I'm not so sure about this, but presumably those utilities might be more interested in generating data and data products that they can use for education purposes with, with the population, whether it's conservation or changing lifestyle and so forth. So I think those... There are a few areas where we we definitely improve. Another area um, Manhattan makes me think of this is the consumption surveys that we have to use for this kind of research really don't tell us very much about what's happening at the very, very top of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, You know how much people in Manhattan in Manhattan, but we should just in case there's any in case this is unclear to anybody listening, Manhattan would be considered you know top one-tenth of one percent.
0: Yeah, huge so, number. I think a third yeah. of residents are in over 100,000 in Manhattan, something like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: So, so uh, in, a, in a random sample consumption survey of the country, our ability to confidently estimate how much uh, people in Manhattan are actually getting on airplanes is relatively limited. Uh, there are proprietary private surveys out there, luxury goods surveys, that explicitly target this population mm-hmm. because there's a lot of money to be made selling goods to that population Uh, that those sorts of surveys are costly. They haven't been integrated as far as I'm not aware of any research in this entire vein that has ever integrated a survey like that, but that would uh, be particularly useful in terms of um, showing up estimates at the upper end of the income distribution. Yeah. I mean, my sense is if
0: anything, you know, reading up a little bit about this uh, when, you know, people at the top of the income ladder are filling out consumer expenditure surveys, you know, they're leaving stuff out, you know, and it's not, I think, shocking to imagine uh, why that could be, whether it's just sort of uh, not getting around to it or or whatever. But, um, you know, it, it it's, it seems that it would be interesting to know just exactly. Yeah. What is the level? And then in terms of composition, and you're right. You know, th- this data exists, right? It's just that it's not, it's not being and- gathered by the same people who are you know, accessible to kind of public researchers or something.
1: Yeah, and and that uncertainty that you just mentioned, uh, you you mentioned that the audience would be pretty nerdy, so maybe I I can talk about this. If uh, if you take the primary consumption survey in the U.S., which is run by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Mm -hmm. and you simply add up all of the expenditures that those households report uh, for different types of goods, and then you compare it, to what businesses are telling uh, the official statistical agencies, they are selling to American consumers. There is a big difference between those two numbers. Yeah. Uh, so on average, the consumption surveys are picking up about 60 percent of the consumption that we know is occurring. Now, my my work tries to address this by adjusting the. Uh, observed household-level consumption so that the totals match what we see nationally right. from the production side, but it is an open question as to whether certain parts of the population underreport more than others. Uh, and I, I, without any information about whether that's true or not, I assume that everyone underreports equally. But I agree, you you suggested, and I, I you know, uh, a priori, I would tend to think that the rich probably have a less less good idea where their money is going, how much they're actually spending because it's not critical to their own financial solvency, and are more likely when someone asks them, how much are you consuming, to be reporting much, much less than they are actually doing. And conversely, a, a household living below the poverty line probably has a pretty darn good idea how much they're spending every month because they need to watch every dime.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the sociology on poverty definitely finds that. And I have actually seen a couple of statistical papers uh, that are arguing that at the upper end of the, of the income, the, the reporting really does fall off, although the, the names of the author and the papers have escaped me at this exact moment. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's so striking. Like, if you imagine, let's say, of the hundred, if there were something like a hundred dollars spent globally as an abstraction on research and on gathering data, you know, I don't know what one ten millionth of it is being spent on figuring out how carbon emissions uh, are linked to consumption, right? And it's, that's, it's a bit of a weird situation in a world in which carbon and other greenhouse gases probably pose a single gravest threat to human existence. Um, the things that you're talking about to enrich the data are still relatively modest asks in the context of like global knowledge production,
1: right? <laughs> I, I think so. But you're <laughs> speaking to a someone with a, a dog in the fight. <laughs> Sure. Well, I don't, th- I didn't know that I had a dog in the fight until I found your research, but um, so, and I don't know how to compare
0: either of us to a dog, but um, anyway. <laughs> I just want to briefly get at one of the core takeaway, takeaway questions raised by our conversation. So poverty is clearly associated with low carbon footprints. Um, and, and yet, although low carbon footprints, let's say in general are good, poverty is clearly bad, it's terrible. So we need to bring down footprints but we are also trying to eliminate poverty. So what can your research tell us about doing both of these things uh, at the same time?
1: We should be we should be clear that uh, we've hinted at this previously in our discussion that no one should uh impute from this conversation that the the conclusion is that uh poor people should be consuming less. <laughs> uh <laughs> Clearly, that's not what uh, any any conclusion that should be drawn. Um, We can imagine certain things that the public sector could do, and this is your area, Daniel. I mean, what you know, the the public sector could invest in things in terms of zoning or in terms of public transportation infrastructure, and so on and so forth, that uh, enable or allow people at lower ends, uh, lower end of the income distribution, to live, um, to actually provide services that make their lives better providing transportation services, but do it in a low-carbon way. Uh, so there are certainly what I would call, I would call that a more conventional way of thinking about the problem, although I'm, I'm sure you could tell us all about more recent new ways that people are thinking of doing this. Um, I mean,
0: there are always twists, but um, yeah, sure, sure. There's, all, there's not that much in the world that is terribly
1: new, yeah. <laughs> uh, if we think bigger picture, and, and this is uh, this is the angle that I come at, Uh, is to think about national comprehensive climate policy, particularly market-based mechanisms where we try to price carbon or tax carbon. And uh, this is specifically the type of research that I was doing earlier this year for Citizens Climate Lobby. And there the question is, imagine that we tax carbon. So we impose a tax on producers of coal, oil, and gas, and when they introduce a gallon of oil or a ton of coal into the U.S. economy, uh, they have to pay a tax to Treasury Department. And so that tax gets passed through the economy. It gets passed into consumer prices. Uh, prices for carbon-intensive things go up more than less carbon-intensive things. That's the price signal that economists want to try and address the problem of externalities, so on and so forth, environmental economics 101. The question here is what do you do with the revenue that you generate from this tax? And we could imagine using some of that revenue to fund precisely the kind of public projects we just discussed. Uh, Maybe it's uh, public transportation infrastructure, for example, or financing uh, um, green energy, windmills, and solar panels. Another idea, which is actually uh, originally can originally be traced intellectually to conservatives, to conservative economists, is to give that revenue back to the people as a a dividend or a tax rebate. And so my work simulates this. If we increase price of goods by taxing carbon, but we give the revenue back to households in some way, say a per capita dividend, or you can imagine tailoring it in different ways, um, what is the net effect on different types of households? Some households come out, some households lose because the cost of consumption rises more than the dividend that they receive. But some households come out ahead the dividend that they get is actually more than the increase in costs due to the carbon tax. And it turns out that, that in fact, households at the low end, low end of the income distribution do, uh, at least in my analysis, do quite well under this policy. So here's a, way to, here's a policy that, in broad strokes, we can imagine addressing a major market failure. Uh, by taxing carbon, we're addressing this problem that polluters are not paying for the Harm that they cause, but tailoring the policy and using the revenue in a way that actually um, generates progressive outcomes in terms of net finances for households. So, for example, if we, if you were to tax carbon at uh, about $15 a ton and you return the entire dividend back to households in a more or less per capita fashion, you find that about 90% of households below the poverty level actually come out ahead under this policy in terms of the uh, the bottom line on their finances so um that's encouraging i think you know could could we politically pass a policy like that probably not strictly like that you know that there'll be some give and take that needs to happen some people will want to fund the public transportation some people will want to uh, very rightly in my opinion fund you know uh Early pension, early retirement for coal miners. Others will want to fund wind turbines and solar panels. Some might want to reduce corporate tax rates or pay down the debt. There's a whole bunch of things that we could do with this revenue. But the point is that we can imagine constructing policies that uh, actually have pro-poor outcomes overall. Uh,
0: yeah, you know, it's funny. I like, you know, we don't have to get into this all right now. I, am, I personally would think it would be insane to raise a bunch of new money and not engage in some kind of green new deal, uh, policy, uh, you know, in an investment. And I think, I don't know, my read of the polls and not, you know, others have looked at this suggest that's pretty popular, but I guess the, maybe the productive way to put the question to you, um, since one could go on forever on these competing priorities is if you are to, let's say put a price and I don't know if you've analyzed all these numbers, but say 15, 20, $30, uh, per ton of carbon, um, and you were to put in something like a 70-30, you know, 30% investment, 70% rebate, or something like that. And I think people have proposed legislation vaguely along these lines, whether it's Mm in Rhode Island Mm -hmm. or or federally. You know, are you able to kind of still carve it into take only about 50 to 60 to 70% for the rebate and still generate this, like, next-day progressive outcome? I mean, in the long term, of course, public policy can have very progressive benefits, but at the same time, if people are getting hit by the gas bill uh, the day the policy goes into effect, then you'd want the rebate to be progressive on day one uh, as well. So I'm wondering, you know, is it is it possible to still come out kind of ahead for, the, for kind of working people and for poor people, even if you are putting a substantial chunk of that revenue into investment in energy, public transportation, housing, etc.?
1: I haven't run those numbers specifically, but that's one of the things that we want to do mm-hmm. going forward. Um, so the short answer is we don't know. But realistically, it's, it's really a question of what policy levers, and this really has to do with the tax code. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, whether whether you spend money on reducing the debt, or reducing corporate tax rates, or funding light rail uh, in American cities, um, the whatever you do with that chunk, you reference 30%, that money just goes out the door the 70% that you return to households, the way that you can generate more progressive or less progressive outcomes is by how you get that money back to people. Mm-hmm. And that really, the mecha- really the primary mechanism by which we do this is the tax code. Um, there are some ways you could do it that tread lightly on the tax code, some that would be quite aggressively you know, integrating themselves into the tax code. For example, expanding the earned income tax credit mm-hmm. would be a comparatively mm-hmm. straightforward way using existing legislation. Um, there are other complications here that have to do with social security payments and things like that. But the bottom line is that we can imagine, um, if, if, if the policymakers are, you know, I'm using air quotes here, smart, uh, because what, what is smart politically has to do also with what just passes, you know, I mean, at the bottom, at the end of the day, um, my interest is, is carbon pricing and, uh, this could happen under a, a whole bunch of different scenarios. But is it conceivable that we could take that 70% or 60% or 80 and and pull the right levers in the tax code to ameliorate negative effects at the low end? Certainly. Certainly. Um, the tax code is a fairly blunt instrument, so there are some limitations. We'll never be able to ensure that 100% of people below the poverty line won't lose some, but we can... Probably uh, design or can imagine designing policies in a way that minimize the pain for those for those that lose and possibly as you suggested, generate um, modest benefits or at least not significant losses for people further up the distribution who who might be key political constituencies for uh, particular votes or particular congress people that that need to support the policy
0: yeah I mean there's just no sense trying to escape the 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 quote unquote realism, right? That's, that's all pervasive in our political system. Um, in terms of you do have to target certain constituencies. That's just how it goes. Um, and I guess just, I think what you're saying in terms of there's no way to organize this numerically such that whatever tax lever you use, you guarantee that not a single household has a, a few bad years. Um, because they may, you know, depending on the, you know, if they're driving a long way and, and so on. But, uh, of course, I think you're also gesturing at the fact that you know, at the end of the day, the the number and the, the analysis you're running is showing that, broadly speaking, taxing carbon can be actually a win for low-income households. Now, the real details of certain people's lives are ultimately going to depend on the broader policy package and context that this comes in. Nothing happens, just in isolation. But right, and so and, far as you can abstract this out, it's actually kind of, it's actually pretty good news.
1: For, yeah, for it is. People. It is. It is possible that we don't have to have a strict trade-off between a... A pro-poor, progressive policy, climate policy and an environmentally or economically sensible policy—that you can have both. That is, that is certainly the case. Um, you know, one, one of the reasons we will, one of the reasons we will never be able to tailor a federal policy to um, do this in, in a, let's say, optimal way, is that the tax code is is a national tax code. It's a federal tax code, and one of the fundamental facts here is that the carbon intensity of energy systems varies across the country. So if you give a rebate back uniformly across the country, and you live in California, where you have a nice climate and relatively clean electricity, well, you can do a lot better than if you live in my neck of the woods, uh, where we have very dirty electricity. And there is no way for the tax code to really address those differences, geographic differences. Uh, unless you open up the can of worms, which is allowing the i r s to vary the rebate based on where you live and you 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 could technically do that, but I think that a lot of politicians would feel that that would be opening up uh a can of worms because everyone would be uh lobbying that that their particular jurisdiction should fall into the higher rebate section of the country and that might be something that would be we might be better off avoiding entirely yeah so so i guess in short it's like you can you can
0: make major progress on climate politics and also at the same time those very same policies can do a lot of great work in terms of eliminating poverty um reducing poverty uh but there's nothing the federal government can do to make it as good to live in Colorado as it is in California. That is just something <laughs> that is beyond the scope of federal government policy, making, certainly beyond me, the IRS.
1: As, as a native Californian, you're making me feel bad about my decision to live in Colorado, but it's actually a really nice place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, are, you know, there, there are other benefits to the landscape in Colorado. So, I don't know. I've I know. visited both a little bit. I'm from Toronto, actually. <laughs> so.
0: uh, great. Well, this seems like a good note to, to end on. So, Kevin, thanks. Uh,
1: thanks so much. Thank you, Daniel.
0: Well, dear listeners, it's time to wrap up Hot and Bothered for 2016. To those of you who celebrate Christmas and still have doubts about the science of climate change, I hope you wake up on December 25th to Christmas stockings stuffed with solar panels and bicycle parts. Believe me, you won't regret it. As for me, I'm going to keep waking up every day with, yes, stiff joints, but also the really firm conviction that we can still stop runaway climate change. Now, as you'll know, loyal listeners from listening to episode three, the big tipping points are still ahead of us. We don't have to go over them. There is still time to win this thing. Trump is not anywhere near strong enough to stop us. Trump is a loser. My New Year's resolution is to keep fighting and to hold on to my conviction that we can win, to plan to win, and to help make sure that we do. Now, finally, a couple words of thanks. So to my co-host, Kate Aronoff, Thanks for being the best hot and bothered co-host that could possibly exist to our listeners. Thank you for listening. And finally, from both Kate and me, the biggest thanks ever to our producer, Colin Kennebra of Descent Magazine. You never hear his voice, but he is the brilliant and long-suffering editor who makes all of this happen in every single way. He deserves to get 10,000 solar panels and 100,000 bike parts stuffed to many, many, many stockings this holiday season. So, as always, dear listeners, please tweet us your hopes, your dreams, your favorite data sets, your New Year's resolutions to hashtag hotbotheredclimate. And until we meet again in 2017, stay hot and stay bothered.